So with that, I'll give you Jim. My name is Jim Clinton, and I am an alcoholic. And for that, I'm awful grateful. I'm real happy to be an alcoholic. I'm real pleased to be one. The first time I heard that from a guy standing up in front of one of these meetings, and he said that, I looked at him and I said, that guy is blankety-blank nuts. He's really crazy, and this outfit's a sick bunch of people. Boy. Because I wasn't too well then. I was a practicing alcoholic, and it's kind of nice to have him at AA meetings. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm supposed to tell how it was, how I got here, and how it is today. And that's pretty, pretty easy. I drank too much for too long for all the right and wrong reasons, and uh, put the plug in the jug one day, and that's it. You know, I got, got happy, got a smile on my face. Yeah. And I'm sure glad I don't need these meetings anymore. Gee. That's what I thought you had to do to quit drinking, because, you know, I was raised right. I was raised in an average alcoholic family, you know, good old American home. Uh, the other alcoholics in my family uh, are not diagnosed, but that my mom was a drunk. My brother is living as a boarder in his house in Texas. My, but I'm the only registered alcoholic in our family. I got a couple uncles I wonder about. And those client weddings were like that. They started, they ran for six days. The main event was somewhere in the middle. And we were usually drunk before and after and during, and that was okay, because that's the way things were done. Because we all drank like gentlemen and ladies. Uh, that means that you did your job. I had my first drink. I guess I'm supposed to tell you when I had my first drink, but around our house there was always booze. I thought every family had six cases of, of Fall City beer in that garage at all times. I didn't recognize it. You know, I, I had a friend and Mac only kept a six-pack in his refrigerator. I never could understand Mac. You know, that was, that was my buddy's. And Mac just kept a six-pack in his refrigerator. And when he ran out of that, he'd sometimes go down that day and get another six-pack, and sometimes he'd wait till a couple days later. But we always had five cases in our garage. It's, <laughs> uh, it was a happy alcoholic home. I have to say that. It was a good, I had a good childhood, and that's, it was a lot of fun and, and a lot of pain, and, and there were funny things that went on. Looking back now, I recognize what, was, what the problem was, but that didn't make any difference. I were raised okay, and I had my, my first alcoholic drink at the age of 13. I discovered alcohol and girls about the same month. It was in, in April or May. It was in May of uh, when I was 13. And uh, 1958, 59, around there, and I'd, I'd been up to Holler. I came from a small town in southern Ohio. People think since southern Ohio, they're mistaken. That's northwest. I'm from southern Ohio. And down there, uh, it's just an average town, you know, an average dirty, stinking steel and chemical town. And it's okay. It's a good place for a kid to be raised in. I, I like my childhood. I had a lot of fun. I lived a half a mile from the river and a half a mile from the hill, and I used to go and just wander both. It was it was a lot of fun. But we were up this uh, holler with my friend Bill Compliment and I, and uh, Mom thought Bill was a bad influence. And 
<laughs> his dad was, we were filling his pickup truck with some road fill, uh, filling up the holes in the road down from the, uh, the lake up the holler. And, and his dad had come up, and we'd shovel a truckload in there, and he'd drive the truck down. And after about the second load, and it's hot out there, Bill says, hey, says Uncle Jim and the boys from Armco left a left a half a keg of beer up the top of the hill, you know, going up. Oh sure, you know why not? So Bill and I, the next time the truck went down the hill, we went up, and boy oh boy, the feeling and that gave me that hot May day, a, a couple of shots of Blatz, you know. Noni was talking about a brain tumor. I had a Blatz tumor. Wow, you know the feeling. If anybody out there is knows this, if they got that same kind of feeling out of alcohol that I did, they wouldn't be a social drinker. They just, no way. Everything got better instantly. Click, you know. I was short and fat and clumsy. And this is true. And uh, I weigh about, wear about the same belt now that I did then. I'm a lot taller. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, my pimples fell off, I could dance better, and I came back down that hill and I knew I'd found the secret, and these people had been keeping it from me. I liked alcohol, I liked, the, I liked what it did for me, but basically I loved that buzz, that light feeling, you know, that wonderful freedom that came from alcohol. I drank not to run away from anything. I drank to run towards it. I really, you know, let's get loaded and go out and party and have fun and meet people and, and have a ball. I got through high school, thank God, because I got shipped off to a boys' finishing school in Cleveland, and uh, they didn't serve any alcohol up there, and that's one of the reasons I got through, because if I'd have done it at home, I would have been drunk for most of those four years as much as possible. Not on purpose, you know, but just uh, I like to party. And I could do my job. So I got to high school, and they didn't serve any liquor up there, and it got me through four years of high school. With I did well in school. They got me out of there, and as I went up to get my diploma, I stumbled and fell, and kind of, boom, fell in the archbishop's lap. <laughs> and the whole place laughed. I was so hungover, I was more dangerous with a hangover than I was drunk, you know. <laughs> drunk, I was careful. Hungover, I was just plain awful. It was, uh, nothing worked quite right. You know, drunk, I could concentrate and make it work right. Hung over, oh, I was sick. Yeah. But everybody laughed. And we got out of there. I did get kind of booted out of high school for a, a period of time. Uh, uh, I'd done some inappropriate things. I was, I was shipped out of the Trappist Monastery. The high school class always had a spiritual retreat. And uh, myself and a couple other guys ended up, uh, after the retreat, making the tour of the bars in Louisville. And... Uh, we drank a lot, and uh, out, and, and I don't remember really, but uh, the next morning I'm sitting in study hall at 8.45, wondering if I'm alive or if this was just a joke, you know, and uh, the headmaster calls me down, and, and, you know, my parents didn't have a, you know, they didn't, they didn't raise any dummies, and uh, that bus ride from Cleveland, I knew what was going to happen when I got that terror. It's kind of like watching a guillotine. And uh, they, they stayed up for two weeks and lectured me and, and a lot of other things. And the whole thing that did it was alcohol, you know, but nobody ever mentioned that. Come on. I got out, I graduated, got out of there, went to college, uh, 
did well in, in college. I was in Georgetown in, in D.C. And I was a periodic alcoholic because my family was raised, they raised me to do the job that you were set out to do. You were allowed to drink and do whatever you wanted, but you had a job to do, you did it. And by God, that's what you did. That There was no ifs, ands, or buts. You And uh, I accepted that, and I still do today, with some reservations. I do do that. Uh, so I, I got to college, and I was a... I was a periodic alcoholic at this time, and I'd know it. I can remember every September we'd come back from the summer, spent most of the summers on the beaches of North Carolina working and drinking. Drank every night, worked every day. Just partying, having a good time. At this time, my hangovers were starting to lengthen out a little bit. You know, as a 14 or 15-year-old kid, my hangover was usually over by 10 the next morning, maybe noon if it was a but now they were starting to last a little longer, and I was drinking much of a hangover. But coming back to college at about, about age nine, I'd, I'd kind of recognize a pattern with this, and it would happen, happen after a long vacation, say, every time. The first two weeks back at school, I, I couldn't go to sleep usually the first night. I had disturbed sleep, disturbed sleep patterns for about two weeks. I felt lousy, and I sweated. And I, it was. There wasn't any bourbon in it. So... I got through college uh, with, with uh, working hard because I knew I had one shot at it, and that was it. I did end up uh, under a motorcycle when I was uh, my sophomore year in college. And the interesting thing was, the only reason I bring this up was that I broke my whole body. It really was. There were about 17 or 18 broken fractured skull, back, legs. And I woke up in this hospital room with a tube in my throat breathing for me. And that was about two or three weeks after I got there. Looked over, and there's a nurse sitting beside me. I said, what am I doing here? She said, oh, you were in a motorcycle accident. The last thing I remember was leaving the Barry Goldwater defeat party at the Young Republicans Club. That I was going out to the campus bar. It was about 10 o'clock to get a couple more beers, because by 10 o'clock that election was already there. I never got off the parking lot. I don't remember. I know now that I blacked out on that cycle. And uh, I woke up and I came to, and I ended up 90 days in the hospital. And I ended up with a cast for my neck. And if you're a, a regular, just an average alcoholic, you're gonna get something to drink. And I was never lacking for something to drink in that hospital. Kept the beer in the window well, and the whiskey was over in the closet. This is a 19-year-old kid. And nobody ever questioned it. Nobody ever said anything about it. And if my sister would come to visit me, and I'd say, would you get me a beer? Sure. Sitting there and put it on the beer. Drink it. Oh. I got out of there and went home. And, and this was, this injury, this broken back and, and ripped up legs, they were, they were to be a good excuse for a long time. Because I can remember laying in that front room. I still couldn't walk real well. I hear my mother in the, there's mom, good old mom rising to the rescue yes but he's in a lot of pain I could drop into pain instantly from then on I mean God you, you know you get up about noon your back starts to hurt or you know you limp a lot and uh, yeah I drank I use that as an excuse to really put away a lot of beer and a lot of whiskey feel sorry for myself oh you poor devil you it's uh if a back had broken a half inch higher, I wouldn't be standing here. 
But that's, you know, poor little old me. You know, I walked out of that hospital, not well, but I did get out of there. And that's, that's looking back. I got, I got out of college, and I can, I can remember, you know, this periodic alcoholic always did his job. Through eight years of higher education, I never missed, with rare exception, an 8 o'clock class. I always showed up for class. Some days I was had been better, better off if I'd have stayed home, but I always did my job. I was always there. I got good grades. I did well. I got my letter from accept, of acceptance to Ohio State University. I got out of Georgetown in about three years. Did most of my work in the first three years. You know, an alcoholic's always in a hurry. I got that letter of acceptance, that was the 1st of February, and I kind of came to the end of February. I disappeared for a while, I don't know what happened. And I came back and I read the bottom of that letter and it said, upon successful completion of this year, and I thought, holy catch, you know, I've missed a little time here, I've got three or four months to catch up. And so I did what every good alcoholic can do at this point. I could always quit drinking, and I always did. Every Sunday at noon I'd quit. By Thursday, usually, I was feeling decent again. I went through the same hangovers in college I was to do later, uh, really feeling rotten Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday felt better, Thursday okay, and Friday we started all over again. Never occurred to me that maybe, well, hey, all that good times in that bottle, come on. I, I put the plug in the jug and didn't take another drink now for four months. Got out of there, did well did real well, got up to Ohio State, got into dental school up there. I am a dentist. That was another story. Once again, I was to start on this same thing. My alcoholism would not, it did not take a steady progression downward. It would kind of drop down a little bit and then climb up a little bit. The crises, you know, the sickness was getting worse. Each time I'd get better, I'd stop drinking and thought I'd be all right again, but it of course, everybody here knows it's chronic and progressive. You never start where you stopped. When it would get bad, I would quit. I'd put the plug in a jug any time for a day to a week to a couple of months. Whatever I'd had to do to get through that immediate crisis, I could always stop drinking. I was at Ohio State. Uh, I met my wife again. Your higher power takes care of you. you know? But uh, met and married her and started a household up there. And my alcoholism by my senior year up there was, uh, aside from that fight that she mentioned, there are a few other instances, too. She wasn't around for some of them. But uh, I had a bad temper. I don't know what happened to it, but I got into a little trouble now and then. I can, st I can remember one night coming back from the fraternity house. This kind of strikes me as, as typical of an alcoholic. I'm driving back, it's about one in the morning, I'd had about a six pack of beer, I'd been working late in the lab there, and this guy, I thought, tried to cut me off, and I was going to get even, you know, the alcoholic creed, don't get, and so I tried to cut him off, and then he cut me off, and I can, he pulled around the corner and jumped out of the, stopped his car, and I pulled right behind him, and I was going to, and he got out of his car, and he got out of his car, and he got out of his car. <laughs> And I got out of mine, you know, it's a point of honor. You, you're gonna... This moose, jeez. He made one fatal mistake. He, he, you know, he's gonna swing first. He swung first, all right, and that was his first mistake. He hit me in the head. He broke his hand. 
That was the end of the fight. It got me right here. It stunned me a little bit, but I was so blitzed by then, it really didn't matter much. And, and he just, just shattered it. It was awful. And somehow I ended up at his house soaking his hand in ice water, <laughs> inviting him out to dinner. I don't know how. <laughs> That's the way it went. Noni was at home asleep at this point. This was about the time my, my senior year. We hide bottles and we, we lie to ourselves and do all that kind of stuff. I bought her a bottle of Chivas, a grandiose drunk. I'm a grandiose drunk. I buy her a bottle of Chivas Regal for Christmas. Now, she is a social drinker, you know. Some of us have some problems. Some of us have other problems. She would still have that bottle of Chivas Regal today, but, well, you know, the liquor store is closing <laughs> under the kitchen sink, and, yeah. I spent the next three months refilling that Chivas Regal bottle out of those four-fifths pint jobbies that cost about five bucks a piece. And when, you know, you're living on 4,500 bucks a year, that's kind of tough. And I don't really know how that ended up, but about that senior year of... Uh, dental school I was taking the national boards and finally I was showing up for class but all my clinic work was done and done too so I did what I'll, I, I volunteered for the emergency room and surgery and and all that kind of stuff and did all right they were always happy to see me I guess I liked that I got out of there and I've got this picture today of this guy that weighs about 200 pounds and he's got the the violet doctorate board or doctorate colors on and, the, and, the, and he's got a face that looks like it's been pumped up with a air hose and kind of red a couple of eyes in there a couple of olives and a bowl of cat and he's lost you know he's just finally after eight years of hard work gotten to where he, he doesn't know where he is i got out of there and went to cincinnati and i had a job lined up with the board of health the board of education down there and ran a clinic down in one of the one of the worst sections of town and spent a year there my alcoholism is is advanced i'm not sure really what is starting to happen right now except that during that period of time i managed to go to work every monday never miss a monday if you're a drinking alcoholic because they'll know they'll know that something's up so i made every monday and by this time you know, when you're under tension at dental school, it's the pressure that does it to you. And you sit there and you shake a little bit. By this time, my, my shaking was getting worse. And I would just tough it out. I'd go to work on Monday. I'd be shaking inside all over, just all over, smoking Lucky Strikes. And uh, it was a free clinic, by the way. Thank God. Cat Clara was there. She was my assistant in years and kept a close eye on me. But uh, I shook all over. I mean, all over, except if I could get the heel of my hand down. My fingers didn't shake. They were okay. You still had your fine control, you know, working in there. And I'd sneak up on patients. <laughs> you know, that Novocaine needle I... It used to scare me a lot, you know, great big long thing. And when you put it in a shaken hand, it looks like, you know, it's... You'd kind of load it leaning on something. This is... I... 
my higher power took care of me. I didn't screw up anybody too much that they didn't heal from. I, it sounds awful, but it's true. I, God took care of me. When things were getting bad, I'd sometimes go home, but I'd sneak up behind him and get the heel of my hand down and kind of jump around like this. Clara, the God bless her, she had a euphemism for what I had. She said, you smell like garlic. I'd say, oh, yeah, Claire, it must have been that Italian dressing I had on that salad at lunch yesterday. What she meant was I smelled like whatever I'd been drinking the night before. And by this time, I wasn't drinking too much during the day. I wasn't drinking at all. I was at five, you know, an after five. Uh, about four o'clock in the spring, there's nothing going on, and I'm feeling bad. And I say, Claire, I think I'll go out and buy a newspaper. To, I guess it was about two o'clock. And I'd head out in a bad section of Cincinnati. It's an old, run-down neighborhood. It's a ghetto, basically. And I'd, I'd head out there and down the street and take a right and come up the main street. The main street drop-in center used to be there, you know, where they put all those alcoholics and uh, they sleep it off on the floor. And I'd circle back around. I'd get away from the school and from the bar right across the street. I wouldn't go there. And I'd circle back around, come up main street and stop in one of those finer food places, the delis with the, the fine wines on the wall and a couple of cans of sardines and, uh, and a, uh, Twinkies on the counter here. And I'd usually select my vintage. Uh, Thunderbird was real nice. It was, it was a light wine, you know. And I'd buy a pint of that and, and you know, out of there, through the alleys, guzzle it down, throw that bottle, and usually hear it hit glass before it hit the ground and back to work with my lucky strike stoked up. Oh, and Clara just see me come in, just keep doing whatever she had to do. But usually by that time of the day, we had nothing else to do anyhow, and uh, watched me go downhill, which is okay. I got out of there by hook or by crook with uh, only one uh, uh, confrontation by my, my boss. After you hit seven Tuesdays off, they come down and talk to you. <laughs> And I, you know, we, he, he, he was a kindred spirit, so we both bullshitted each other and left friends, and I left that job in good standing at the end of the year when my contract was up, and he had heard through her mother that somebody was selling a practice on the eastern end, so borrowed the money and went to work, and for the first time in my life, after I had enough money to go across the river and buy that kid. You know, to be a regular alcoholic, you got to have a little money, and the more you have, the better it is, as long as you don't have too much. But if you got enough to buy enough booze to really do yourself in, you're in good shape, because none of this slow, scenic route. And so I, I can still remember that feeling coming back across that bridge in that 67 or 72 VW, and that case of liquors in that little thing in the back, behind the back, the feeling like, you know, looking back, coming over. It's like a couple coming back from the hospital with a new baby. It was... Noni doesn't share these feelings, but I sure do. You know, I loved it. And, and I, you know, I didn't want to throw out all those bottles that we kept stashed back in there because, after all, but I drank that whole case up plus whatever I added to it in the month of January and uh, bottomed out and ended up that Wednesday afternoon coming home. My blackouts weren't long-distance blackouts. I'm not a kind of a blackout drinker that ends up in Tijuana or, you know, 
New York or Los Angeles. I'd go in and out of a blackout walking across this room. And this was one of those nights I had been drinking on top of that medication. Something happened and we started to fight. And she knows more about this year than I do. And I came to with the pistol waving it, threatening her and me. And she, I don't remember any of this coming in. And I can remember that knock on the door, that, that feeling that, uh, you know, that feeling of impending doom that alcoholics have. And you know what that's caused by? It's caused by impending doom. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I knew the cops were there and the knock on the door and I said, sure, come on in. And this door opened up and this guy from ASAP, which is, he just kind of filled the door. And this is one of those old apartment buildings with about a seven or eight foot door and come with me. How you feeling? That was his, fine, I'm feeling, okay, you know, you want to come with me? Yeah. And uh, his sidekick came around the corner right then with a stretcher. He said, get on. I can walk out of here. I'm okay. I'm still under my own power, you know. I'm the last shred of alcoholic dignity. I'm mother, please. I can uh, get on. Yes, sir. And he put, they strapped me on there, and I ended up going by out all past those people and meet your neighbors. <laughs> That woman that lived across the hall still looks at me funny every time I see her. I saw her in the art museum about three weeks ago, and she's leading a pack of about ten kids, and she, you know, kind of stays her distance. That's okay. But, oh, I told my father-in-law what he could do with everything he hoped to own or owned at that time, and with appropriate hand signals at the top of my voice. He was a, he was really a neat guy. He. He lived this program without ever needing it. Uh, I ended up in that hospital in lockup where they, they strapped me into, into a straitjacket and leather straps to keep me from... And after about three days, they decided that I was okay, that I could go out into the unlocked ward with the regular crazy people. And that was, you know, that's kind of graduation. You're out there, and, and I'm running up and down, and I'm angry. I'm really mad. I am really PO'd because you guys, my wife, my father-in-law, the state dental board, the Internal Revenue Service, the government of the city of Cincinnati, and those dirty rats, you know, they had put me there. And after about four or five more days, bouncing off the walls, and there were three other alcoholics on this unit with me. We'd sit and play cards and take our Thorazine and whatever else it was uh, three times a day. Uh, they treated, uh, at this hospital at that time, they treated chemical addiction with chemicals. That's like fighting fire with gasoline, you know? It's, uh, and we'd sit there, and, and finally this other alcoholic, Barry, or Ronnie, Ronnie B., he's a truck driver, you know, and Ronnie came over and he said, hey, there's an AA meeting over in this next building over here on Tuesday. And I figured by that time, just, just, hey, maybe a little bit, uh, alcohol had something to do with me getting there, and and oh yeah, why not? And besides that, they let me off the floor to go to that meeting. I'd been on that floor for a week. I went over to this A&A meeting, and it was in a basement. Oh, God. And there was this good-looking woman, the secretary of the psychiatrist, who was running the meeting. And she had this chalkboard behind her, and there was uh, Jelnick's uh, curve up there that curve that goes from social drinking down to at the bottom, it goes to death, insanity, or incarceration, you think. 
and all the stages of alcoholism on your way down, you know, drinking before drinking, uh, family troubles, uh, you know, you name it. It's car wrecks, uh, trouble at home, trouble on the job, and then about three steps from the bottom, there it was, voluntary or involuntary commitment to a son. There I was, you know. Ha! You know. I'm an alcoholic. From my first AA meeting, I knew I was an alcoholic. Pretty simple. Look at that. I did all that, you know. Yeah, I'm a so what? I'm 27 years old, and these old fuddy-duddies, and after I got out of this uh, meeting, they came around and bothered me a lot. <laughs> Bob would call me every Wednesday night. Bob with this smile on his face, and he laughed and had a lot of fun. And I thought Bob was a nice guy. These guys were okay. They're a little wacky. That's all right. You know, if I got that old, I'd probably get that way, too. And they'd come around, they'd talk about this AA program, and they'd take me to meetings, and I kind of thought it was a neat, a really neat idea, you know. It's great. Those 12 steps are wonderful. I took them the first time I read and that was just great. And I, I went to meetings, and I tried not to drink. Knew you weren't supposed to drink. And I'm not sure what happened this year, uh, except I didn't make it through that Christmas, I can tell you that. And I didn't like Christmas too much. These guys would call me every Wednesday night. Jim, you want to go to a meeting? Uh, no, Bob, I'm real busy. I've, uh, you know, down in the basement adjusting the... F I heard the furnace go off. Zip, you know, down there. You can keep whiskey all over a basement. It's all kinds of uh, goofy stuff. Pretty regular. But this guy would call me every Wednesday night. If I, they showed up to pick... I can remember this one meeting. at Big round table. About 12, 15 people there. They go around a table and they talk, and you know, here's this grin who thinks he knows something, trying to stay sober. He can't. And they'd ask me my opinion, and you know, I'd read this book cover to cover. I could quote from it, memorize the good parts, and uh, philo uh, philosophize about these 12. And I was trying to get sober through semantics, you know, through these little arguments and, and things we'd have around the coffee table and around the meeting, argue about them. And I loved those meetings. And I thought it was really neat. And at the end of the meeting, Dick W. would come up and he'd, you know, you smell a little bit like alcohol, you know. <laughs> you could probably smell me ten foot away. And, and I'd say, yeah. And I went to meetings and i you know, sit down and shut up. That's all right. You know, don't worry about it. Keep coming back. And I heard that, keep, com keep coming back. It'll this went on for two years, you know. Two years is a long time to be a newcomer. It'll be all right. I ended up in Batesville. I tried one last good old-fashioned Fourth of July. Meanwhile, our, our baby had been born, and I did get sober for that. You know, she doesn't remember this, but I do in graphic detail. Sunday night, I think, there's probably something up. You know, she's about out to here, and it's about that time, and I thought, I'd better quit drinking. So I quit drinking, and by... By this time, my, my hangovers were going on a regular routine basis, you know, very predictable. Monday, I was sick as a dog and threw up a lot. Tuesday was diarrhea. Wednesday, maybe I could eat something. And by Thursday night, and maybe get a whole night's sleep on Wednesday, lucky, and, and by Thursday, I was feeling okay. Well, it was Wednesday night, and I was almost getting ready to drop off to sleep at May maybe five hours of sleep, and I get this nudge in the side, and that's a good reason to drink. But I tried to get sober, and I couldn't.
and I ended up in Batesville, Indiana. And, and they had two weeks of AA meetings, and I learned a lot, and I met a lot of nice people, and I got out of there, and I was drunk. Ended up in Good Shepherd Hall and tried to get sober there, and with a little to save my life later. Got out of there, and I was trying not to drink. I to a guy that, by this time, I can't stop. I had to have this stuff, and the terror in it. Oh, it was awful. I did not want to drink. When I was in Batesville, I read the big book again after I'd been there a couple of weeks, and one of the passages that stuck out and still sticks, this woman was put in into the hospital, and it was here that I realized for the first time that as a practicing alcoholic, I had no rights. Society can do anything it chief when I, when I am drunk, for, and I can't lift a finger to stop it, for I forfeit my rights through the simple expedient of becoming a menace to myself and to the people anymore. That's when I, I read that and saw that for the first time in Batesville. I'd read this book lots of times. I was trying to, I was trying to work the steps and drink. You know, you can't get sober just reading these steps chant. I was using the 12 steps of AA like a prayer wheel. Spin it again, get credit upstairs. I got out of there, went down to North Carolina, and it was there that I discovered that I was a wife beater. Because I can still remember that after two weeks of trying to get sober down there, I'd, I, buy the, I was buying the vodka by the half a gallon now, and I'd quit drinking, and three days later, I'd just starting to slip into the DTs, and I'd run down and buy another bottle. And finally, uh, we're cleaning up the place down there to come back. And my wife uh, said something to me. I was on my knees washing out the refrigerator. And I, she said something to me, and I, instant anger, I'd had a little bit to drink, and I swung at her. I had never, ever remember. I can't even think of a good reason to do it today. Besides that, I could get hurt doing it. But I still remember that fist. I swung at her, and that fist was just in the air. And about right there, I knew it was wrong. I knew I didn't want to do it. She was gone. In the back room, had her backpack, baby over arm. The last thing I remember seeing was walking down this long driveway, hitchhiking down the road. Met in AA, another one of those guys in white. She got to Cincinnati, and I spent the night down at Cross after he came up and talked to me. And he put me on the road that morning with this, with this warning. He said, look, uh, I love you. If you're going to kill yourself, I'd rather you do. He said, I got kids on that road coming. Got home. She was gone again. After about, I don't know how long it was, I got up enough courage to call. She's over to her mother's. The deal was now that, hey, you either, I love you drunk or sober, but I'm not going to live with you. Without Al-Anon, I wouldn't be here today. I went over and picked her up, needed a drink to do that, and brought her back home. I finally started to do what you people have been telling me to do for two go to 90 meetings, and I finally went to 90, and I had the first sober Christmas in 14 years. Day after Christmas, a little bit, and he's off and running again. That was a short one, a couple of days. I didn't want to drink anymore, but I couldn't. 90 days before, I'd been drinking it by the half gallon, just to stay even. 90 days, no booze. Day after Christmas, one drink. Friday night, going out to a party. Six o'clock at night, one drink. Ten o'clock at night, this slipped into a blackout. Came out of that blackout at two that morning. They knew I'd been in a blackout. I know I was in the blackout because I came to arguing with somebody about. I don't remember where this. It's a real chronic and a. Right then, I knew I had to stop, but I couldn't. It was four more days. 
before she called me from that friend's house she was spending the night out with a bin. Chick called me Monday morning and I couldn't stop by myself. He brought me up to Fairbanks here in Indianapolis. I went through Fairbanks and there was where I finally started to understand. A guy named Ben Quick was in there with me. Ben saved my life. He died. Age, wife, family, job. I was sitting there and watched him die. I shouldn't have been on that side of the hospital. That got my attention. I did the fourth and the fifth step. I've been talking about it a lot. Please stop recorder at this point. Turn cassette to side two. Thank you. A guy named Ben Quick was in there with me. Ben saved my life. He died. He was my age. Wife, family, job. The whole nine yards. I was sitting there and watched him die. I shouldn't have been on that side of the hospital when I was... That got my attention. I did the fourth and the fifth step after that. I'd been talking about it a lot. I took the fourth step, took the fifth step. And from that day to this, I have not been bothered by a desire to take a drink. Take it as you will. I got out of there and had a wonderful first year. Just everything was, was just going great. You know, we got four kids now, and none of them, even though Noni says otherwise, was born until I got to AA. It, it, some people say it has a lot to do with the, the alcohol killing the testosterone levels and making, making you sterile, sort of. And I think it really has nothing to do with that. I think it basically is the way you smell. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be near me when I was the way I was, so I don't know how she felt about it, but, oh, it was awful, but we got four kids now, and each, each birth is better. The first one was tough. The second one was okay. The third one was just all right. And the fourth one, I was coming back from the guy that meant a lot to my sobriety, one of these tapes that they made, a guy named Jack Brennan. I was at the Thanksgiving banquet in Cincinnati, and she was getting close, and I thought, I'll go alone. And, and I got back from that, that lead, and, and I got home, and she said, gee, I'm glad you came home. I said, why? She said, well, I, I'm in labor said, okay, let's go to the hospital, and just went on, just normal, just average, no panic, you know. I sobered up, and sometime that spring, I realized what you people were talking about. Living a day at a time, I looked at those slogans, you know, easy does it, first thing, what a bunch of nonsense. And I finally started to understand. One day I woke up in the spring, and I said, God, I'm a free man. I am a free man. They gave me my freedom living just 24 hours. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. I'm a free man. That's incredible. My father-in-law knew already. He said, look, he said, don't worry about it. He says, let your, you know, you owe some money. Don't you worry about it. He says, let your creditors worry about it. I said, you know, you're right. You know, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll get here. Don't worry about it. Just do what you got to do today. And so I set out to do what I could do today. And that's crazy. If you do everything you're supposed to do today, tomorrow takes care of itself. Because when you get to tomorrow, that makes it today. Well, it goes on and on. And, and I got free and I got happy and I got sleeping well and playing with my kids and getting to know my wife all over again. Had to, had to kind of go through a lot of adjustment there because when I first got around and tried to sober up and was trying to get sober, I'd look over and say, what did I marry that for? And I thought, I'll stick around for the kids. You know, very, very 
self-sacrificing. After about a year of that nonsense, I found out who I was married to, you know. I grew up a little bit. And I kept trying to do better, started working, started enjoying my work a lot more and the people with me, and I practiced these principles to the best of my ability in all my affairs. And it's incredible what it does. It's incredible. If you treat people with the principles of this program I found, they treat you pretty much the same way. You know, with the openness and honesty and love. If you're just flat honest and don't be rude, they understand. I feel a lot better. I don't have to cover up all those lies anymore. We got real well and things went along real well. And something happened. As a practicing dentist, I used to have a little laughing gas around my office. I'll tell you something about that stuff, folks, and any other chemicals. This is my opinion only, frankly. If you got to have it, you got to have it. That's, you know, there's some people that can't live without chemicals. The diabetic's one of them, and a few others are too. But I thought maybe just a little nitrous oxide to take the edge off the day, you know. Just a little sniff. That same kind of feeling I did when I was 30. Everything went away. All my troubles, they so far away yesterday. And I started with just a little bit as a, what first was, was something to play with. It uh, became a habit, and then it became a necessity, you know. And I'd studied alcoholism and addiction, and I'd done a lot of reading other than the big book. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know, you're addicted to this stuff. Nah, not me. Uh-uh. <laughs> I think you're addicted to this. I'll quit it on my own thing. And these guys that knew me in AA would come up and say, what's wrong, Jim? There's something wrong, you know. Oh, I'm okay. Don't worry about it. One guy hit me at the ice cream shop one day, nose to nose. He said, you're on something. What is it? Well, Dick, uh, I was sniffing a little nitrous. He said, I think you ought to quit. And Noni was, you know, she knew about it. And I kept getting sicker and sicker. What used to be five or ten minutes got to be an hour or two, and then it got to be all night. I was doing the same thing with that alcohol. Same kind of progression, only it took about six months. I used to break my glasses a lot when I lose days and hours. And finally, one, uh, I guess it was January the 5th or so, I started this Young People Cincinnati, myself and five other people. We got together, you know, we had to talk about these other chemicals, and I thought that was a good idea. Well, that's a good idea, you know. I was the chairman of the first meeting chairman the first month and I chaired and opened that meeting this banner great big wonderful 10 people showed up but it was a start and I chaired that first young people's meeting and two days later I was on a plane to Hazleton in the coldest winter in a hundred years up there god it was cold I spent 31 days in Hazleton and they said look you intellectual idiot they wouldn't you know other people like give reading assignments too you know, read about this, read about that. You read the big book, first five chapters, no more, and read a day at a time, one day at a time. That's all we want you to do. You're not allowed to do any more than that. If I catch you reading any, And so I did what they told me to do, and I got to know some people and got to know myself a little. Up there, they treat alcoholism, at least when I was there. I don't know what they're doing. They treated it with uh, alcohol. We were all peer counseled, somebody else, and we kind of guided a little bit by counselor. But I got well up there. Well enough to go home and not drink in time. Had to go back one more time. That was in 77. You know, 
it's been great since then. People say, God, do you have to keep going to those meetings? Well, like it says here, when I am drunk, I can't lift a finger to stop it, for I forfeit my rights through the simple expedient of becoming a man. With deep shame came the knowledge, too, that I had lived with no sense of social obligation, nor had I known the mean, meaning of moral responsibility to my fellow man. This AA program and you people taught me that meaning, the meaning of moral responsibility to my fellow man and the social obligations that I have, even to the people I don't like, but that's okay. We're having a lot of fun today, my wife and I. You know, the things that you can get through AA is just amazing. When we had some trouble when I first sobered up, the second first year of sobering up was just hell on wheels. I went through a depression, a grinding depression that lasted for a solid year. Some days I'd come to meetings and just hang on because I knew, I knew from being around here that it would get better if I just hung on and didn't use anything. And so I did hang on. I didn't use anything and things got... I was the subject of a lawsuit that dragged on for four years. My, my mother died. My father-in-law died. We had a lot of trouble. And you know the people that came to help me? You're looking at... They were an AA. I didn't even ask for a lot of the help I got. They'd kind of show up on the door one day, go to court. I'd look around, and my God, you know, there were 10 people there that I didn't know existed from Alcoholics Anonymous that were there on my behalf. One guy went out and took up a petition. It was, uh, he knew that it was a political deal that I was in. I didn't know that. He knew better than I did. He, he, he just helped a lot. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't ask for better friends. I couldn't beg, borrow, or steal them. And I try to give it back whenever I can now. There's no way I can pay it back. I got away from AA just a little bit because I was told to, and now I understand why I was told to. It's kind of in Bill C's that I used to go to six, seven meetings a week, and I needed it back then when I was first newly trying to get dry. So, but after I've been around a few years and I understand what they told me, a, a lady told me, she said, look, you got a wife and family, you got a job, you got some social obligations. you got moral responsibility to your fellow man, and the meetings are the way to get to that. But you got to take some time to do it, and I couldn't keep going to seven meetings a week and become an AA junkie. I couldn't do that because wasn't, I wasn't feeling right being at meetings too much. I can't explain it to you. But Bill Wilson pretty well says it here, seeing as Bill sees it in number 21. It says, Citizens again, I really like this part. Each of us, in turn, that is, the member who gets the most out of the program, spends a lot of time in 12-step work in the early years. However, sooner or later, most of us are presented with other obligations to family, friends, and country. And you, you will remember the 12-step also refers to practicing these principles in all our affairs. And he goes on a little bit. He said, I know that you are expected at some point to do more than carry the message of AA to other alcoholics. In AA, we aim not only for sobriety, we try again to become citizens of the world that we rejected and of the world that once rejected us. This is the ultimate demonstration toward which 12-step work is the first but not the final step. I enjoy 12-step work. I don't do it much one-on-one. -on -one. I do some. My first pigeon kept me so, and I do some now. I go to my meeting every week, Wednesday night, and Noni and I go out on Saturday nights together to an AA meeting. Sometimes I'll stop down by the club.
Most of my friends are in AA, and some real dear ones. We got out to British Columbia this year. We've taken trips I didn't know existed, just going to AA conferences. It's really neat. I've got friends from Maine to California, from Florida to Alaska, and around the world. And I met them all in places like this. And I can take up where I left off just by walking in the room where they are. You know, AA is really neat. You forget all that stuff that, you know, the, the social one-on-one and the and the the nitpicking and the the social status and the order of stuff like this that goes through every other social organization. We have no leaders. You walk into a meeting. I'm dead even with the guy that could buy and sell me three times. I'm also dead on even with the guy. I've met some really neat people. Fantastic people, just incredible people. Stuff that they write soap operas about, but they can't put the kind of Every, every AA meeting is just loaded with happy endings. Every lead I hear has a happy ending. You know, the guy's sober today. I'm sober tonight. I wouldn't give you a nickel for the world and all that was in it. And today I just want it to last. You know, I want to live to be 95. I want to see my children's children. I want to keep it going. I like it. I like every. That back, that old back injury is rotten. I mean, just absolutely miserable. Some days it hurts to get out of bed. But that's okay. My drug of choice now is aspirin. That works real well. And I go to meetings, and I was looking across. There's this physician friend of mine. I said, Al, you know this back's kicking up again. And he's, he looks at me, and he, he says, do you know anything? He says, well, he said, uh, said, I got a couple of friends that won't mess you up too bad. And he drinks his coffee and walks off laughing at me. And he knows. He says, you know, don't worry about it. Just keep going. Just doing what you got to do. Go to meetings. Don't drink. Read the big book. When I sobered up, I didn't know which way to go, you know. I'd given away everything I'd ever. I'd given up all my principles. And I figured when I sobered up, they talked about principles and they talked about living right. So I decided to get the non-conference approved big book and read that thing called the Bible and I read it thought it was interesting it was and I try to run my life according to the principles found there and it's okay because it's a principle that I found here in AA that keeps me alive this place was run on the principle of, of love and that's incredible because years ago I had no idea what that meant thank you all for having me